Welcome to Ghostman Radio Station, and tonight my guest is Juliet Nelson. Who is Juliet? Well, she's an I.O. philosophy professional, author, speaker, entrepreneur, and educator. I'm a thought leader, entrepreneur, published author who is passionate about employing people to achieve their standards of their purpose. Having a bachelor and master's in business administration has grown to become passionate about equipping our clients with the tools be more productive, successful, enjoy better quality of life. I also have a doctoral candidate in industrial and organizational physiology as I aim to provide value to organizations in learning, development, employee engagement, and organizational effectiveness. Uh, hi, Juliet. How, how is your day so far? It's going pretty well. How about yours? It's all right. Um... Now, you've, you've done quite a lot, I can see, to help um, fellow people to get a better thing out of their life. Is that what the best way of saying it? To gain a bit of more learning experiences? and Yeah. And it's quite a hard... People... It's quite a hard thing, isn't it? Because I, I imagine you know, we are in the world of the pandemic world. Obviously, the online educational thing... They've been a bit of a godsend in one way. Yes. Yeah. So um, I know when the pandemic, well, for me, when the pandemic happened and, you know, a lot of students were um, sent into the virtual world, um, you know, that became, I don't want to say an opportunity, but that, you know, as, a, as an educator, tutor, someone that supports their academic development, it became critical for me to step in and, and really help them to navigate their time, to navigate um, the online experience, um, you know, navigate just processing, not seeing their friends at school and having to engage in this virtual environment. So, you know, for me at first, I would have thought that the students would have enjoyed it, especially my younger ones who, you know, they love to play games on their iPads and so on and so forth, but you find that that human connection is also needed. So as an educator, you find a way to really create a safe space for them to continue learning and for them to be their best selves and to perform. And it's important that we learn, that we, as we've discussed in this country, about children's mental health. I mean, I know people poo-poo it a bit, and I, I, I can see where they're going from, because it, mental health, although we talk about it more than we ever did, it's still, some people think, oh, no, you know, there's no such thing as mental health. It's just somebody being, playing up. You know, it's, how can kids get mentally ill? You know, you think, well, of course they are. They're human beings, aren't they? Right, right, right. And I know um, growing up myself, I have parents um, from the Caribbean, and, you know, growing up in that culture, mental health, um, it's often a very taboo thing. Um, so it's not something, addressing mental health issues are, are not really common. Um, so culturally, I know growing up, you know, if I have a bad day or I say I'm tired, an adult would more than likely say, why would you be tired? You don't have any bills to pay. And you, you know, you don't have kids to raise and you don't have um, a family to take care of. And you don't have any bills. So, you know, as a kid, all of a sudden, my feelings and my needs become disregarded. And I think especially with this pandemic, it shows that, you know, no matter how old you are, your feelings are valid, you know, and, and the way people perceive life and the way they take it in, it's different. So, you know, 
a friend, a, a, you know, a toddler, you know, maybe them not being able to play outside, that might make them have a bad day. And even though it's not the same thing as an adult losing their job, however, based on their experience, it still matters because they're still human. Um, so I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to, you know, for students, adults, um, people of all ages, for us to be more considerate as to people's feelings and to really look at them as human beings and consider the fact that even though their experiences are not our own, their experiences still matter. Do you think it, it, it's wrong for us to completely rely on the governments to come up with some solution to help kids with mental health? Or do you think it should be a bit of both? I think it's, it, it needs to be a holistic process, right? Um, the government can have a part to play. I know in the United States, <laughs> unlike other countries around the world, healthcare is very expensive. Um, I know there are a lot of people of influence, celebrities who've stepped up, who, and, you know, just normal people who um, stepped up to, you know, bring more awareness to the importance of achieving, working toward mental health um, and mental wellness um, and seeing how they could um, at least provide support to those who wouldn't be able to afford mental health services. So in terms of the government, yeah, I think there are a lot of opportunities at least to make those types of services affordable for those especially in need, um, or at least, you know, make them so that everybody has an opportunity um, to access those services. But again, it can also be a social thing, you know. Um, you know, in the UK, in the United States, you have people from so many different cultures, right? Um, and so with people from different cultures, there are so many different perceptions, um, especially when you, you're talking different demographics of people, um, whether it's an ethnic um, an, an ethnic thing, whether it's a gender thing, whether it's an age thing, you know, mental health and mental illness, it tends to be taboo among different types of cultures and different communities. And so I think in the social realm, I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to say it's okay for you to see a therapist. It's okay for you to seek counsel. Um, and you don't have to seek counsel when you have a problem. You know, you can seek counsel to celebrate your wins and see how you can really unlearn some of the the bad habits, I don't, I don't want to say bad habits, but unlearn some of the things that have caused limitations in your life and see how you can, um, you know, work toward being more of your authentic self or being more of your best self. So for me, I think it's it's very much a holistic thing, not just the government, but also, you know, um, different social communities. So. And can you tell me a bit, I might mispronounce it, so I do apologize in advance. Junori? Junori. Yeah, thank you. So Januri is um, an academic and uh, professional development company. Um, it we I work we well we work with students and professionals with students um, on the academic development. There it's anything from tutoring and and that's more of a personalized learning experience. So we're really identifying a student's learning needs and then taking a holistic approach to um, achieving academic growth. Um, you know we also work with students in terms of, you know, um, their academic writing, research, um, citations um, at different academic levels. We also work with professionals in terms of job preparation, professional development, coaching, um, and so on and so forth. And Junuri also has two subsidiaries, 
one being a publishing company. So, you know, we work to, um, whether it's editing services, book coaching or publishing itself, we really work to, um, with authors to allow them to walk in their purpose by sharing their stories and, and really sharing their voices. And then we have Nuri Lens, which is also an eyewear company, um, a wooden eyewear company, but it's, it's very symbolic of that growth. Um, wood, when you look at a tree, you know, it's, it's one that is deeply rooted and it, and it grows, it evolves. And so the eyewear company um, is symbolic of that. So, yeah, that's, that's all of Junuri. And then can you tell, I'm definitely going to say this wrong, so I'll spell it. V-W-A-Z-E-N. Voisin. Yeah. So Voisin is Haitian Creole for um, neighbor. Um, and that is a Haitian Creole learning management, language learning management system. And that's where um, we first and foremost build more social awareness of, you know, the value of the Haitian Creole language as well as um, providing resources and tools for people to be able to learn that language. Is that to sort of keep the language alive? Say, like we do it with Welsh and Scottish. Um, you can learn Welsh and Scottish. and uh, In Cornwall, you can learn the Cornish. Is it similar to that? Um, you're saying, is it a derivative of, of that language? No, it's like you're keeping the language alive. By teaching, right. so, yeah, yeah. So if, I wouldn't say we're necessarily trying to keep it alive because it's here. I think it's more bringing more awareness to the fact that it it it's, it exists All right. by itself. Um, so Haitian Creole, it it is it was formed out of, um, and this is what it said. It was formed out of a need for slave masters in Haiti to communicate with their slaves, right? You have slaves who came, who um, people who were taken from West Africa and they were turned into slaves, Haiti being uh, one of those locations, um, and or Haiti in the Dominican Republic, which was formerly known as Hispaniola. Um, so that being said, Haitian Creole became uh, a language influenced by um, Spanish, mostly French, mostly West African dialect, um, and then you have Spanish, you have Portuguese influence in there, um, and a lot of Latin influence in that language. But surprisingly, people consider it as either a French slang, or they will consider it as a patois, um, which is part of the process to becoming an official language. But Haitian Creole is actually, you know, its own language. So, you know, while people speak it, again, the perception is that it's just, you know, a slang. It's an official language, so our goal is not necessarily making sure it doesn't go away, but bringing more awareness to its value, you know, to how beautiful of a language it is, and the fact that, you know, there are grammatical rules that come along with it. It's not written any type of way. It's not spoken any type of way. Um, so, yeah. I think it's important, things like that, to keep history alive, whether, whether, whether it started in a bad way or a good way, because... I think the only way to learn from the past, and you can probably disagree, I don't mind, is that you have to acknowledge what went on, although it wasn't great. I mean, we were slavers and America was slavers. Nearly every country in the world was slavers at one time of being. I don't agree with what they did, but we can't go back, if you know what I mean. Um, I think, so 
no, the challenge, I, 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 I do agree to a, a significant degree. Um, I'll say I do agree in terms of how do we address it. That's the question, right? It's important that we address it in order to move forward, but the question is how. And I think, especially living in the United States, one of the biggest challenges is that slavery doesn't, slavery exists in the United States. It doesn't look the same. And so a lot of people may perceive that, oh, well, slavery was 400 years ago. Um, or, you know, um, black and white children, for example, can sit in the same classroom. Black and white adults can go to the same supermarkets, drink out of the same water fountains, and so on and so forth. And now we have opportunities for LGBTQ, women, um, Asian, um, Native American, just all different um, demographics of people, different groups of people. But again, the challenge is that, um, especially in the United States, um, slavery, racism, bias, it just has a different manifestation. It just looks differently. And the challenge is with not calling a spade a spade and really sitting in that and saying, okay, what went wrong? And how do we undo or unlearn some of these things of the past is the fact that everyone wants a very comfortable way of addressing issues that are so pressing. You know, having conversations about racism or bias or, you know, inequity, um, those are very tough conversations. And I find that people like to have the surface level conversations that are very feel good and, and comfortable. And so when you have those surface level conversations, you're not able to really address the root of all the issues that are going on. I so, think um, I, I think if you've been, I've been unintentionally racist in my past. I said the term that I shouldn't have said about the certain race people, the Pakistani people. I said it in a different way, which is quite racist in this country. And right. I should have said it, and I've learned from that. I, I don't try to judge anybody no more but I own the fact that I did say that because otherwise I wouldn't have learned like, I shouldn't have said that you know what I mean right right and 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 that's what's important right learning um and having a level of self-awareness I think there's another level to it is it's also being considerate of those people having those experiences right um one thing I've mentioned you know as an African-American first-generation immigrant woman um what I've mentioned to some people, um, for example, some of my Caucasian um, counterparts, is that some people don't want to re revisit their trauma. And so I find that, you know, a lot of people in my network, African Americans, um, they sometimes just don't want to have the conversation. For them, it's like, hey, we had to learn your history. Now you have to do the work and learn ours. Um, and so I think that's where the challenge is because you know, it becomes tricky for someone having to recount some of these traumatic experiences, being pulled over by a cop and, and literally fearing for your life as a black person and so on and so forth. Um, and so I think there's a level of understanding that also needs to come about that, you know, in your experience, self-awareness is very important. You know, having those difficult conversations with yourself and being willing to learn and being willing to grow, you know, being conscious and, and, and reflecting on your behaviors, seeing how you may have consciously or unconsciously um, said something hurtful or did something hurtful or did something that passed a certain message. You know, as human beings, I think one thing that we forget 
is that um, a lot of the behaviors are literally ingrained from generations and generations and generations. And so um, one thing I've even mentioned, I, I've used these in workshops and so on and so forth. They have something called the Will, Willie Lynch syndrome. And th there's a man called William Lynch. He was a slave owner and he was from the Caribbean and he went to America and he came to the slave owners and he said, I have a system that will keep um, the slaves in bondage um, for hundreds, tens and hundreds of years. And basically what you're going to do is you're going to divide them based on their characteristics, their physical traits and characteristics. Um, and you're going to turn them against each other and they should trust nobody but the white man. And so, of course, you have black people who are able to become slaves and um, leaders and so on and so forth. But sometimes that same syndrome exists and it's very much ingrained into our culture where you might have the one white uh, director, um, director or leader or CEO that uses the black, the one black teacher's pet, I guess, and turns them against their colleagues to fit their agenda. And while they might not intentionally do it um, with the thought of bias or prejudice or racism in their head. It's a manifestation of what happened during times of slavery. And so self-awareness also includes really checking in with ourselves and seeing what behaviors um, are actually a manifestation or a different version of some of the to toxic um, things that occurred in the past. Um, you don't have to ask the next answer the next question, but I think it's worth asking. Um, what do you think of the Black Life Matters um, movement? I respect it as a black person. Um, that everybody has their form of activism. The thing about the Black Lives Matter movement that I, I wish people understood is that there's the organization, right, and there's the message. And I think a lot of people, in order to avoid the message, they focus so much on the organization, the entity, which is called Black Lives Matter, which started this message. Um, in spite of the organization, in spite of what it does, how it does, what it does, the reality is that Black Lives Matter. And it doesn't take away from Asians, it doesn't take away from Native Americans, it doesn't take away from Caucasians, it doesn't take away from Hispanics. But um, for me, what I realized is the fact that um, the history of the world for the most part, because Europe started all of this, um, you know, with colonization, especially in the, in, in the Americas and even in Africa and even in Asia, the, the core of this issue first started as white and black. It was first a color thing. Hispanics emerged out of, you know, the blending of slaves, people taken from West Africa turned into slaves, and they're Spanish colonizers, right? Um, and so I think when we look at Black Lives Matter now, we try to say, well, all lives matter and so on and so forth, but we don't realize that the core, especially in the United States, of you know what the country is founded on is that black lives um, don't matter. They don't matter. And so I find that the more we avoid that message and what it means, the issues will always 
thing. Again, it doesn't take away from the fact that other lives matter. But um, that message is something that should be given attention. You know, in my observation, I find that when Asians were being attacked, everybody went crazy and said, stop Asian hate. When, um, you know, when there are attacks against LGBTQ, um, no one says all lives matter. Everyone is okay with focusing on that group of people that is being targeted. But when it comes to black people, I think because the, the conversation surrounding the atrocities against black people is so deep and so ingrained and it's so hard and the reality behind it is, is very harsh for a lot of people to really come to terms with and deal with. They're so quick to say, well, um, all lives matter. Or for example, blue lives matter when you're referring to cops. Um, so I think there's a lot of hypocrisy um, that comes with that. But I really, really hope that people understand that um, people focus on the message and understand that no one's trying to take away from anybody's humanity or anybody's dignity. But it's a hard conversation that needs to be had. Yeah, I'm, I agree with you. I think it's something we all have to think about more than we used to. And I think we should teach kids about the what, uh, you know, the empires and the what we did and why we did it. And then we should leave it up to them if they think, you know, obviously say it was wrong, but we should leave it to them to decide which way they would want to go. I, I sometimes, I don't know if this is wrong or right. When we say you can't use certain words or certain phrases, right. a certain words I understand why. I can understand they can be very strongly racist i can understand that but you can when you read old books and when the attitudes are quite different then to now do you think we should state to them as they were written back when they've written say in 1940 just for argument's sake and, and which books are you referring to um say something like um huckleberry finn or something like that from from the context in, in the way it was written. Now, bringing those into classrooms, I think maybe the conversations about those books might could be different. Um, I know as an educator, some of the books, uh, what book is it that I'm reading? Um, and I forget it. Um, but there's one book that I read in high school and one of my high schoolers is reading now. Um, and it, it literally left me just now but you can you in the language in the book in the text you see that there's a lot of um you can feel the that the times during which they were written were very uh jim crow ish which was you know a very segregated time in the united states um and so i think i wouldn't say taking them off shelves or preventing kids from reading them but I think those should be used as conversation pieces. Yeah, they could be like the, um, you do like a week's worth of the book at school, but you could do the right. counterpoints. You say, look, this is what we think now, sort of thing. Right. So I went to a predominantly Caucasian high school. 
right? And I remember um, reading that specific book um, and reading a lot of books. And when I think back on those books, I'm like, oh, my goodness, these were written during times of Jim Crow, of uh, segregation and so on and so forth. And they, the way they spoke, uh, you know, the, the way blacks were compared to their white counterparts and so on and so forth, they were very demeaning in the book, even the way the narrators speak and so on and so forth. But when I learned about them in my English classes, they were more for the sake of thematic um, interpretation. What is the theme? What is the author writing about? What is the main topic in the book? Um, how are three ways for us to support it? But there was really no historical context to say this was the reality that we were dealing with in the United States or around the world during that time. And I think that's challenging because it, it, it's, it, it takes when you become an adult to look back at that book and say, that was wild. You know, I can't believe they had us learning, reading this book at this age in this grade. Um, you know, even in history books, um, and they say that usually everyone's going to tell a story in a way that makes them look good. So, for example, um, during the times of Nazi Germany, they were not saying that it was a horrible thing to put Jewish people in concentration camps. Germany would put themselves with propaganda and so on and so forth. The way they raised the children in schools was so that the children were indoctrinated so they didn't think that what was being done was wrong. And in the same sense in the United States, when you learn about World War One and World War Two, the way we learn about them in history books is that the U.S. had a reason to be getting involved in wars that they probably had no business getting involved in, right? And that's the same thing with slavery. Um, you know, usually when we're talking about slavery, when we're talking about racism and so on and so forth, they might get a paragraph in a textbook. They might get a sentence. But it's not something that really becomes a teachable moment for students, for us to really understand the reality of those times. And as a black student especially, it takes away from me knowing myself and knowing my history, um, which to me I think is it's damaging, right, for black, um, black and white children, you know, because it, it then makes them grow up to a place where they're so blind to the realities, right, um, especially for white children, they become adults and they're like, well, this country isn't a racist country or we don't have these issues. But again, reading a book where there are certain words being used, there's certain language, there are certain messages being passed, we don't want to solely try to brush over them at a surface level or try to say, okay, what, what was the theme? What were the main characters and so on and so forth? We really want to look at the times in which these books were written and use those as teachable moments for these students so that when they become adults, they can be a little bit more proactive about first unlearning some of the unconscious biases that they may have had or even addressing some of the injustices that exist during that time. So well, We had a strange thing over here. We had a reinterpretation of Anne Boleyn and one of the actresses was a black lady playing the character of Anne Boleyn and the, the, the kick up about it, oh, it's not hysterically correct. I thought, well, it's a... It's a, a, a representation of the woman. And obviously they thought, oh, this woman is gone what she went through and how powerful she was to next to the king. Perhaps if we play it this way, we can show it in a different light. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think there are a lot of, um, and I mean, even when you talk about the media, 
um, when you have black people in roles, we always are in the, you know, there's always the, the black children who grew up without their black father, um, the deadbeat father, um, and, and, you know, those messages are also important. But what about speaking to um, the accomplishments of black people? You know, the normal things that we do. Um, we have normal families, you know. Um, we mother, father, children in the family. Um, or fathers as single parents that are raising their children and doing a very great job at it. Um, those those messages should also be portrayed. Um, so yeah, I think I think again, you know, going back to even you know, I know you mentioned, is it up to the government to address, for example, COVID? I think it's up to society, it's up to our government, it's up to our people, it's up to our world community to also in, in address biases, to also address prejudices, um, and to also address the issues that exist, and really be ready to have those difficult conversations. Oh, thank you for that, Julie. I think we've had a good debate there. And now we'll go into your book, Sharing My Lenses, The College Experience, which I think I can say is like a a collection of what you went through in college and what you learned and sometimes what you didn't learn. <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it does touch on some of my experiences, um, but I, for the most part, I do share a lot of the gems that I, I learned um, and that I didn't learn, as you mentioned, um, and pass those on. Um, actually, this was a birthday gift to myself a couple of years ago, and so it, to me, for me it was me writing a book to my younger self. Um, I took college classes in high school and I know one of my biggest frustrations was having to learn at a college level and then having to go back to the quote unquote high school level. And when I got to college, um, I, I remember failing a class my first semester, um, because it, it, I just was unprepared in spite of the fact that I'd taken college classes in high school, I wasn't as prepared as I probably should have been. And as I'd gone along, my four years in undergrad, um, doing two years, uh, well, a year and a half um, in my, my MBA program, and now being a PhD student, uh, I increasingly see, you know, a lot of the gaps that exist, where we try to give, especially middle school, high school students, a very elementary version of what they can expect to, to experience in college. They graduate from college, they graduate from high school, and then college is like this completely different world. And this is a world where they can't call their parents, their parents can't show up to the guidance to, to the guidance counselor's office to address the fact that they failed the test, that they're missing assignments. It, it becomes almost like a culture shock, we can say, um, where it's a different environment for them, it's a different academic culture, and it, it becomes challenging for a lot of students to, to succeed or to pull through. And you might find students who say, well, college is not for me. Or you might find that college becomes a very, or university becomes a very, very um, challenging time. And it becomes very challenging for them to navigate through it. And so, especially being in my psychology program now, I've been able to really look at people's behaviors and also look at intentions, right? Why do we do the things that we do? And so part of the message in my book is really, 
focusing on those intentions, right? Being intentional about knowing yourself, being intentional about learning, knowing your learning style, knowing your personality and being okay with that. Everybody has opportunities to grow, but there are ways for you to ensure that you're taking control of your academic journey. You're equipping yourself with the skills and the tools that you need to succeed. And you're also understanding the value of, of you know, taking in those tools and those resources. Uh, if someone um, was to uh, reading your book, what would you hope they would get out of it? Um, take time to learn yourself, number one. Number two, take time to better yourself. Number three, trust the process. And number four, don't be afraid to connect with other people that are along a similar journey. And as you say, your education is very important. Do you think that we are too geared up and you can say this from a professional side, I presume, because uh, you know for yourself. Um, do you think we go are too geared up for exams as such? You said exams? You know, like when you teach students, mm-hmm. the, the theory uh, in this country is that we teach them too much for to get the exam results rather than actually teaching them. Okay, so you're talking like state exams and stuff like that? Yeah. Okay, so we call those, um, well, there are state exams and there are SATs. Yes, I do. I. It's not that we teach them too much. Again, it's the approach. And I don't blame teachers. I very much blame the system under which teachers teach. Because I think if we left it up to a lot of teachers, um, they, I think, they would be able to take on certain approaches that would be better for their students instead of having to meet quotas or criteria. And I do understand the importance of learning models and, and teaching students by those learning models. Um, but what happens is when we're limited, um, the exper- the learning experience is also limited. So I don't know if, if um, and also trying to teach a kid so that they can work toward an exam. The problem, exams are nice, but maybe the approach in which the exams are given could also be improved. And the way the exams are evaluated and how they're, um, how they're weighted should also be um, considered. You know, for us, we have um, SATs. I think they're called Standard Aptitude Tests. Um, and those are a big deal for college um, entrance. But the challenge with that is there are some students um, myself included, we are just not test takers. So it's a poor indicator of our performance. Now, I did I did a decent job on my SATs, but you have some students, they might get nervous, they might have anxiety, right? There's so much you could study for. Um, you know, for some students, they might perform better in, um, you know, an extended, um, extended writing prompt where, you know, you give them a prompt and they write a page or two or three. Others might do better with multiple choice. Um, and so I think having these exams and saying, okay, this is a significant indicator of your performance, of your intelligence, I think that it limits our ability to really see what students are so capable of. 
Um, I, I, as you say, it's just as we think. As I remember when I was at school, I was made to stay um, to uh, an extra year in the same class. And I always felt that I was catching up. Right. And yeah, I, I, and I can now I can relate that to the pandemic now because I can know what I went through all my adult life, thinking, "Oh God." I always felt behind. I always, I think that's what made me feel more paranoid. If I'm honest with myself, right? And um, but that's where the self awareness comes in, right? Um, I always tell people that you you should always be a learner of your life's journey. Um, and I know some students they say, "Well, college isn't for me." Maybe trade school would have been better for them, because I I do believe that everyone should seek to learn. So if you don't want to go to college, make sure you're reading enough books that is going to give you the amount of education, not education, but the amount of knowledge that that can help you succeed and that can help you evolve and that can help you grow. Um, you know, and and I think schools could do a better job um, or or at schools, academic institutions, they could do a better job in how they really evaluate a student's skills and so on and so forth. Every student has the ability to learn. Every person has the ability to learn. Every person has the ability to grow. But you you want to ensure that you're you're creating an environment that's conducive to them to learn. Right? If for myself, I'm not an auditory learner. So if I ask you for directions and you just tell me, I will probably nod yes because you told me too much for me to catch up. And after the first light that you told me to make a right at, I've lost the rest. However, if you showed me a map, if you showed me a picture with landmarks and so on and so forth, because I'm a, more of a visual learner, hearing it from you and seeing it makes more sense. And so even in classrooms, maybe for yourself, you know, maybe you needed a learning environment that was more conducive to your learning style. And you didn't get that. And you were never even taught how to navigate being in a, a learning environment that's not conducive to your learning style or not conducive to your personality. You know, some students or people are more introverted. And introversion is not just shy, but introversion is the need to really be alone, have some kind of alone time to recharge. And so some students, they might work better independently. But forcing them to always be in group projects and so on and so forth, that might be challenging for them to succeed in those environments. So again, I, I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to really consider the fact that people have, people are able to learn, people are able to evolve, people are able to grow, people are able to be their best selves, but we should really work towards seeing how we can create an environment that's safe for them to be their best and authentic selves. Hmm. I, I, as I, said, I think it's just interesting how the, how, we all learn from each other. That's what I'm learned doing. I, that's why I like podcasting. Because people say, oh, well, why do you do talk to these people? I say, well, because I learn things that I probably wouldn't have learned. You know, I learn things like you told me, that you said about the, the, the slavery and all that. And you learn more and more and you're thinking, oh, yeah, that, that's a valid point. Because as you say, we don't look at it deeply because, as you say, some of it we find a bit very uncomfortable. But, I'm a great believer in taboos should be broken. Right. Because the more we have a taboo, the more we won't talk about it, the more it comes a taboo. 
Because I, I used to work in mental health and I dealt with, I used to say patients that you probably would not let your kids near. Just put it that way. And people used to say, oh, why would you work with these people? You know what they're like. I said, well, A, I know where they are. And B, I know which way to talk to them. I know why they they like attention. They love it. They love all the, you know, the number one kind of thing because they know they get the money and all that. And if you treat them normal, they hated it. I know people find that odd. I, I will accept that, that people go, how can you talk like that? And I thought, well, because I was there. I know what, I, you know, I know that they would try every trick in the book to get you to, you know, wind you up. And the more you didn't react, they didn't like it. So, um, I mean, you saying that you work with people with mental mental health, I've uh, ment- mental um, illnesses. You know, for me, mental illness is is a, a topic that's very near and dear to me. Um, and I've learned that we have to be okay with stepping out to the unfamiliar for us to actually achieve healing, which is a much better feeling than where we're at. And so because we're in our levels of dysfunction, it's comfortable. We don't want to um, step out of that. And so, you know, we'll avoid certain people, right? We'll avoid learning from other people. Um, For example, someone with mental illnesses. A lot of people have these taboos or they have these misconceptions about people with mental illnesses. They think that they look a certain way and or even if they look a certain way that they're a type of way and so on and so forth. But what if you considered stepping out into the unfamiliar and really learning and seeking to understand and seeking to observe and seeking to learn uh, to to, um, you know, work to address those things that you've never learned or address those probably misconceptions and so on and so forth that you've had. Once you're able to get that clarity, life gets so much better. Because you can be more genuine, because you can be more intentional, because you can be more sincere. But when you don't know, it becomes challenging to do that. Well, Julia, we've come to the end now. Please mention where people can find whatever websites you wish to mention. Yes, so you can visit uh, my website at julietnurinelson.com. My name is spelled J-U-L-I-E-T-T-E. Um, Nuri spelled and as in Nancy, U R as in Robert, I Nelson spelled and as in Nancy, E L as in Larry, S as in Sally, O N as in Nancy. Juliet Nuri Nelson.com. Um, I am also on Instagram and Facebook, um, and I go by Juliet Nuri Nelson. And, um, what I always ask my guests the following, um, Juliet, what is your unique sign off? What is my unique sign? What words would you like to say? Um, love yourself and love others. Quick and sweet. Well, here's mine for you, Juliet. Are you ready? Yes. I spoke to Juliet today about many, many questions that we, we addressed, but mostly about her, her book, which we should look up and share and give it a five-star review. That's sharing my lens, the college experience. I wonder if she went 
singing as a director in a college. Sorry about the bad singing. <laughs> and, and she's done a lot. She's a CEO of, I I'm just going to spell it because I keep we're going to say it in that wrong. G J N L U R I, and she uh, the V W A Z E N, and and she is a remarkable lady. And I've admired the fact we could have a debate. We didn't shout. We didn't holler. And we can. And we are both of different skins. And it didn't matter. And one iota. And that is that.